0: Bootsy Show, the Bootsy Show, we'll talk a little while and share a cup of joe, so tell all your friends, wherever you go, tune into the Charlie Boots Show! That's the Charlie Boots Show! I don't know if that's the right song for today's episode, or if today's more of a meet the Mets kind of day. We got a PhD, and by that I mean a pretty huge deal. The good doctor, one of the greatest arms in baseball history, and one of the kings of New York City, a rare title that does not get thrown around lightly, one of the kings of New York City, Dwight Doc Gooden honored to be having doc on the show today and folks if you head over to charliebootshow.com you'll see the new layout we have the podcast right there for you and all our past episodes last two guests were mlb hall of famer johnny bench and nfl hall of famer ray guy and then you'll see our food show flavor some great episodes for you to check out we just shot three episodes out in the bay area so go check those ones out from ricky sports bar in san leandro and McGee's and Otay's out in Alameda. Good eats, great people, and uh, you'll catch it all on charliebootshow.com. I gotta say, with St. Patrick's Day just rolling past, I, I think that the Irish coffee has taken the gold medal first place in my favorite, uh, favorite washdown of choice, and I think McGee's had a big role and influence in that. Today's Doc Gooden episode, East Coast Legend, well, national legend, but East Coast Legend, is powered by another East Coast Legend, Eagle Paint and Wallpaper, Englewood, New Jersey, home of all your paint supply needs. Go visit the Pizarri family and let the Eagle fly new colors into your home. Visit our friends at Eagle Paint, eleven four West Palisades Ave, Englewood, New Jersey, 201 568-6051. I just want to say quickly before we get into the episode, you know, a lot's been going on with all the marches in the country and the school shootings and all these things going on. I think that no matter what side you feel and politically, I think everybody wants to see safety for kids and I think that no matter what we do, we should be looking to spread as many smiles as we can a day and if we're all focused on that. I think the world would be a much nicer place. I mean, just ask Doc Gooden. He came into the concrete jungle, the city that never sleeps. Biggest city in the world, the Big Apple. 19 years old, becomes a king of New Yorks and spreads a lot of smiles around the borough of Queens and the island of New York City. 19 coming into the league, winning a World Series for the Wild Boy Mets. And going on, no-hitter, World Series for the Yankees. Just a laundry list. Always been one of the guys I looked up to the most. And really, really happy that this episode came together. Right here, episode 15 of the Charlie Boots Show. Folks, you are listening on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Charliebootshow.com. And without further ado, here he is, Dr. K, Doc Gooden. I'm your host, Charlie Boots. You are tuned in to the Charlie Boot Show. Here's Doc. Live from the K Corner, here's the good doctor, Mr. Doc Gooden. Doc, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me Thanks, bro. Well, how you doing, buddy?
0: Absolutely. Uh, we just got off the phone with uh, Hall of Fame Raiders punter, Ray Guy. And uh, the Raiders have a lot of love for you, man. From Cliff Branch today was saying, you got to tell my buddy, Doc, hello. The Ray Guy saying, that's one of the meanest fastballs I've ever seen.
1: I appreciate that. They one of the best players, too. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Giants fan. It was a tough year. But, you know, you always root for the guys that have a lot of success and bring a lot of excitement to the game. He definitely did that.
0: And you're also a Florida boy. And Tom Tommy Coughlin went down from the Giants to to Jacksonville. And, sheesh, what got into them?
1: I have no idea. They played well. I thought they actually were going to beat New England. But uh, that team that's been coming, Tom Coughlin was awesome. I thought when the Giants got rid of them, I'm speaking of the Giants and I thought that they were making a change. They had like I don't know two hundred million to spend. They're just gonna do that. I thought they should have brought Coughlin back for one more year.
0: Mm-hmm. Or giving him like some some front office type position.
1: Definitely.
0: You know, you've had you've had great leaders. You know, had you've had guys like you know Steinbrenner, Joe Torre, uh, Davey Johnson. Could you compare Davey Johnson and Joe Torre?
1: Uh, they're a little different, um, but had the same goals of winning, winning um, mentality. They um, both. You know, they, they both communicated well with players because you know you're dealing with 25 man losses, and so you got 25 different personalities. Both of them communicated well. Uh, I think the mm-hmm. only really difference was David Paul looked closer to his, his, his players. What I mean by that, um, on the back of the plane, he would know, sit back there to the on the mm-hmm. road, look up each, But it's thing that mattered. where Tori, you know, on the plane sitting in the front, the players in the back on the road, lot the coaches terms of looking at themselves, which nothing well. I would say that was the only difference. I just had a, probably more of a personal relationship with Davey because I know him since 1982 when I first signed him. He was over instructing with the Mets. I remember seeing him. He I was in 14th and C and then he in 83. I played uh, called up to play with him in the Triple X Telfy World Series. So i to know David more on a personal level than uh, Joe did. Oh, Joe Torrey did a great job as well.
0: Man, yeah, and he had to be like you know, you come to the pros nineteen, and you were only one year in down with the Tidewater Tides before you got called up. So that that had to be almost like an uncle figure to you.
1: Oh, definitely. It happened very quickly. You know, like you said, only only really a full year in the minor leagues, um, starting this year, and then going to Tidewater. And David Johnson was the guy once again that you know, fought for me to make the team in '84. You know the front office' because of my age I felt I would be better if I went back to AA triple a for another year or two of seasoning, but David was right there in my corner fight for me, so I gave a lot of, a lot a lot for jump starting my career in nineteen eighty
0: four man did you did you know like in your head when they called you up because that's an early call up did you know you were gonna you were you were ready for it to go on become rookie of the year and have case corner and all that
1: not not really um I wasn't sure. You know, spring, spring training in 84, I thought I did pretty well. That gave me some decent experience. But, um, once the season actually started, I wasn't sure. But they just said, um, actually, I remember in 84, in spring training, my husband said, you look at the, the batters. You look at the names on the back of the jerseys. And that kind of stuck out a little bit. And that kind of helped me because, you know, I remember just a couple of to that I've been in the backyard with my nephew Gary Sheffield. I'm pretending to be Pete Rose. I'm pretending to be Mike Schmidt. Yeah, I'm Andre Dawson. All well, these guys now your face them. So you just try to separate the name from, the, you know, the player, and try to get them out. But um, I remember my first start. I beat Houston 5-4, and I told—I mean, I went five innings. And I think won 5-4, and I told my dad after the game. I said, "It should be fun. I should win a lot of games." My second start with the Cubs. I got knocked out in the third inning, and then I told my dad, "I don't know if I'm ready." So. I, you know, you just go back and forth, and that's what they really, really did. I didn't really feel I belonged and I was ready until after the All Star game, to be honest.
0: Mm. That got your confidence up. I'm an All Star. I'm ready.
1: Yeah. Once so say got, you know, clubhouse and talking about like a, Nolan, a lot of these guys and, oh, man, I can't see you, throw. And then having three strikeouts in the All Star game. It's only Gary Carter, you know, having Mike Schmidt, you know, the American all these guys on your team now, You know, facing the American line, or talking, getting interviewed by Howard Cosell before the game. Uh, coming in as a friend of other. I actually watched on TV, you know, prior to making it. And once all that happened and the success I was having the first half, I think I had maybe seven or eight wins in the first half was the out. I thought that belonged at that time, but I still didn't take nothing for granted.
0: That that's goosebumps right there. Nineteen year old Doc Good in the in the all star game dugout and Nolan Ryan saying, I can't wait to watch you throw. Oh, that's like crazy 'cause
1: one of my heroes. was and Pete Rose, you know, Tom Seaver, Giorgio Richard all the guys are my, are my idols and guys telling me that and I, my thing was I started off in the bullpen of you know eighty four I obviously I wanted to get in the game, but even if I hadn't got in the game, I would have been killed yet. I just couldn't wait to get back to the hotel and call my friends and tell them who all I had a conversation with. That was very important to me. I just couldn't believe it. You know, It was like being a fan and I won this, you know, some auction or something and I got to play with my heroes. That's what it felt like.
0: Oh, right. Hey, man, that's so crazy, too. Folks, you heard him right before, his nephew, Gary Sheffield, and he was thrown in the backyard to him. Did you, at what age did you say, this kid's going to be a problem with the bat? You know what's
1: funny is um, we grew up in the same house. His mom is my sister, and she had him at a very young age. So it was um, like like with Gary on Saturdays, I would have my cereal, and then I'd go outside, and I'm throwing the ball in the house, and breaking windows, all this stuff. But he would really watch cartoons. And so probably when he got about eight or nine years old, I, caught, I started forcing him outside. And we were so, and I'm 40 years old, so we should play this game for like a one-on-one, but we should call it a strikeout, where I would throw to him, you know, the fence behind him and all the a You know, thing would draw a little line on it for a strike. I would throw to him, and then he throw to me like that. And so if you hit the ball on top of the house, or like a single or hit the ball over the house, the home run, that's the, like our rules. And I remember when he – I used to totally dominate him at that time, eight, nine, you know 12, 13, but when he got, like, about 10 and 11, and he started hitting me, you know, not regularly, but he was hitting me pretty good at that time. I mean, imagine a 11-year-old kid hitting a 6 year old kid, or, I mean, a 15-year-old kid. I mean, and so he's on me, so I knew once he got to high school and sent him hitting against guys, he was like a man against boys, and I remember going back to Nola Ryan again. I remember saying, of course, when Nola Ryan said he faced Gary. Um, in the first set bat. he threw one, Gary hit a foul on run. He said, the next pitch, he threw one over his head, and 53 here out of the park. I said, well, not to brag or anything, but you're not going to throw a fastball bike, Jerry, because, you know, he grew up facing me all those years. <laughs> not that, you know, I'm guys, better right. I'm not saying that, but just not the fact really that when a kid, he played against me. And I should take him with me to play other neighborhoods and stuff like that. So he grew up playing around older guys, so when he made some majors in 19 as well, he wasn't intimidated by those guys because he grew up around that coming to spring training with me 86, he got to real serious with me. That's the year he got drafted. So going so late, I mean, he wasn't intimidated by nobody.
0: Wow, that is so cool. So who was like, were you giving him the high leg kick? And was he giving you the, the bat violently swinging? <laughs> you,
1: you know what's funny? I'm glad you brought that up. A funny story with the with that, with the high leg kick and the wood on the bat. My dad taught me and Gary the game at a young age. We used to go to the park, we used to do drills. And we used to do drills with the ball, with the globe with the bat. Which at that time, as a young kid, it wasn't fun because... When you go to the park as a kid and they're talking about learning baseball, you're thinking, I want to hit, I want to throw. Well, my dad was right, right. teaching the, the fundamentals, repetition. So, mm-hmm. when Gary with the wiggle of the bat, a lot of times when he's wiggling his bat, you know, sometimes he's a little slower than normal. When he's going a little slower, he's taking all speed pitches. When he's going real, real fast, he's thinking fastball. So, I was aware of that because I was doing what my dad was teaching him. So, when Gary got traded from Milwaukee to San Diego, and actually, he had his bat going. So, I would tell whoever's catching, don't put down a sign on not on my head because I want to see who's going to do it with the bat, so I really never had too much problem with Gary. I mean I didn't say him out that much, but he didn't really do any damage off me because I knew what he was looking for mm-hmm. but I, I i I never shared that with my teammates because he's still my nephew, so I let them figure it out themselves <laughs> <That was fun. laughs> so, so, and I never That's- told Gary about that until once I retired, and then you know we had a conversation about it, and we laughed and joked about it.
0: That is crazy, and and that's so cool. the 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 family first principle it it, it lives, baby.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I felt bad for like my, my teammates, but I mean, he's still family. So where are you gonna <laughs> do?
0: It's my little bro.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: it all started, like you said, with the family and pops teaching you the game. So so, what was like your earliest baseball memory? How did how did the love of the game start for you?
1: Well, it so starts me, my dad was a huge baseball fan. Before he passed away, you know, they didn't have the MLB, they didn't have, the, you know, all the different networks now that they have, but he watched baseball day. and just game on Saturday, game of the week with Joe Gadgiola, and then we got the Braves on, on the radio because we were growing up in Flatton, Florida, and Braves are right there in Georgia so we got the game. So my dad, I would say going back to like I was four or five years old, man, plus my dad, coached me up am baseball. He played so He just loved baseball. He loved sports. So and me a a a boy, his youngest son, thirteen years younger than any of my siblings, so I would follow him everywhere he go before his mm-hmm. learning the game. Mm-hmm. On Saturdays, I remember my dad would be off from work, he'll have his beer and chips, I'll have my juice and cookies. He's in a labor boy chair I'm on the floor but I'm watching the game. And he would say, What'd you throw here? And at that time he would say, what did you throw here? what did you throw here? Are you hidden what did you look for? So I, said, I just thought he was asking questions, not knowing that he was actually teaching me about, you know, what did you in certain situations. My father had so much knowledge of baseball. That's the only thing I regret that I didn't ask before he passed away to find out where he got his knowledge from because he was so full of the game. It was unbelievable. And it worked to me and Gary's advantage. And he was a big reason why man Gary made it at such a young age. I mean, he started teaching me stuff at a young age, the knowledge of the game, what you look for in hitters and stuff like that, which I wasn't aware of what he was doing until I got older, 12, 13 years old. Then it came to me that what he was doing back then was teaching me how you, what you look for in certain counts, and so on.
0: So where did your pops grow up, and who was his favorite player?
1: Well, he grew up in Georgia, a small town, America's Georgia, and by then, you know, he had a third grade education. Unfortunately, they went to high school at a church at that time. Um, right. He had to drop out of school at third grade to work in the cotton field, the so he basically self-taught himself everything, and I would have never known that had he not shared that with me, because he basically taught himself how to read, write, and everything, and if you talk to my father, I mean, he could conversate with the president or he can conversate with somebody's homeless. He just was that's like a guy. And part of that's what part of me, I treat everybody the same. It doesn't matter to me if you're a president or homeless or whatever. I try to put a smile on everybody's face. I say hello everybody, I can talk to everybody. And that's from my upbring. Just where my father was. And he just loved baseball. He played a lot of sound like baseball. He claimed he probably could have made it if mm-hmm. he got the shot. He claimed that I have nothing to go on to say he would have not made it. so I don't know. But um I never met my grandfather, but they say my grandfather was a great baseball player back in the days in Negro League and stuff like that. But I never got a chance to meet him. He had passed away, before I was born. But my my father had a lot of baseball knowledge.
0: Your grandpa's was in the Negro Leagues. What position did he play?
1: He was a pitcher. Also, they say that's where it all came from. Wow. And I guess he taught my dad, and then my dad passed it on to me. Supposedly, that's what I've heard from like aunts and so on, like that back in Georgia.
0: That is cool. I told you earlier. We just had Ray Guy on, and he made a comment that I thought was really cool. Like he, he, was talking about the modern athlete, and he said, "I think the major difference between when I was coming up and now is that the young guys are aware of the level of opportunity in front of them, and that, and that in the past it was just you know you didn't know what was really going to come of it, and because it wasn't as it wasn't as huge you know financially and things like that. And that that's huge right there. Like to hear that it was just it was just to love of the game." and your dad that, that that pushed your passion. And then you and Chef wind up both 19 years old in the pros. Yeah,
1: that's amazing. And Ray's running. I mean, we played the game. It's just the love of the game. It wasn't about salary. or like, even when I made it, I mean, it was about competition. We didn't frighten eyes with other teams before games. We didn't talk to the players. Even if Gary came with the Padres or Marlins, or I, I wouldn't talk to him before the game, not on the field. We didn't do that type of stuff. And it was, it was real robberies we had. And you love the game. You have knowledge of the game. Like I studied the game. I knew the guys ahead of me, what they did. And I was a big, huge fan of baseball. And I think today, you may have some guys that are that way. But overall, I think now it's more about salary. And plus now they have these kids when they're you know nineteen years old, getting pitching lessons, hitting lessons. We went to these academies. They have traveling baseball. Mm-hmm. We didn't have all that. We basically pitch, you know, and learned by playing. When the, if it wasn't baseball season, really we but about playing other neighborhoods and stuff like that. That's where we taught ourselves. And then you go into the game. Had a lot of respect for the game. Um, worked hard. And the guys now, I think it's different. Even when they get drafted, because they they on TV now. Like sports football, they are on high school football games now on ESPN. Right. And then all the, all the college World Series and stuff is on national TV. They have you have the baseball draft on TV. And all these guys are getting drafted and getting you know, $13 dollars. And then they get drafted. And then I know. I was coaching with the uh, Yankees in the minor leagues from 2001 to 2007. When these high draft picks, when you come into the majors, I mean, into the workouts after you sign, these kids, they'll them because the number one takes are a big investment. So it's different to most of these guys. They come in, and it's more of a business than the game. And I think it should be more of the game than the business. That's what we're approaching right. because, like you say, the love of the game. When you take care of yourself and your, mm. your job on the field, the business part, take care of yourself.
0: Mm. And that and that's spoken from the best, folks. And that and that's that's a fact. And now when you were I mean, you were you know, king of New York at nineteen years old, right? Then you go on, you win the you win the World Series eighty six. Yeah. What was the coolest like gift you were either given or, or first cool purchase you made when you were in the league? I think well
1: uh, if I can say two, I'll say when I first got drafted, I was able when my signed up, I to get my dad a car, a new car where he had to catch the bus and and catch rides wow. with his friends get him a car so he can go to work. And then once I started making some money, like in 1986 when we were serious, to get my parents a home, now, we had a house, but it wasn't like the best. I mean, we had enough to get by. We didn't have much, but, you know, it was a happy-loving family. But we get to my wow. house and see this, the, and my mom got a house, and now she has a real kitchen because she have to cook. Now we got heat, you know, before we had this be in front of the stove, turn the stove on, and let the stove down, stuff like that. Now we got heat, we got air, we got stuff like that, and you see the freshness of her face. That face, to me, that's what it was all about. I mean, that inspired me to really work even harder at what I was doing.
0: Man, that's a, that's that's real goosebumps right there, man. Gee whiz.
1: I mean, we grew up like that. And like I say, both well, I to both my parents had a third-grade education. They set up to themselves. And, I mean, great parents, it just we didn't have much, but we had love. That was one thing we had, right. we had, love and support from each other. And my parents got me whatever I needed. Somehow they made it happen, like, get what I needed. And that was just my way. I'm saying thank them you know thank you to them even though i had to force my mom to retire from work once i you know start having success and doing well because there's this brother <laughs> that was just working and team, so but that's the way it was man and so you know
0: doc i think i think you being from tampa is why george steinbrenner fell in love with tampa
1: oh well, he, he loved tampa george was a tremendous man like a lot of times you hear the, you know you only hit mostly a stuff with george but i got the witness George, once I retired Mm -hmm. from 2001, like I said, to 2006, I grew up under George. I got to travel with George. Just met him with private planes. I got to travel into George, dinner with George. And I see his work and the stuff he does in the community, what he does with people we just meet. strangers, But he didn't want nobody to know. He always said, if you're doing stuff from your heart, it should be that way. If more than one or two people know what you're doing, you're not doing it from your heart. He always said that. And I try to live by the same rules he lived by. You know, I do a lot of things for people. I'm doing it for the heart, so it's not about media or whatever I And mean, some things you do, obviously on the media bar, to draw attention to whatever awareness that is. Some things it just happen to be that day you just do it. And I learned yeah. that from George. Um, just a, a good hearted guy. I mean tough. He got on there several times, I mean he could be tough, but if he got on you you deserved it. But you knew at the end of the day it was all over with and he's still the corner.
0: Yeah, and it's all authentic, you know, that the guys like George Steinbrenner, Al Davis. The, you know, st- strong leadership, man. It's got to be authentic.
1: Oh, yes, yes. He, he was he a was real, real guy. I mean, and, and plus he was a fan. And the thing he got a lot of heat about. They like, say, oh, well, he's mm-hmm. buying careers. He's buying championships. Well, you know what? He was investing back into his team for the fans, and the other owners had the same opportunity to do that, but they're putting them in their pocket instead of back into the team. But he got blamed and, and bad rap for buying players. But other guys could be doing the same thing.
0: Right. You could you could be doing the same thing. And just because you're paying for talent doesn't necessarily mean they're going to yeah, match. That's true. A like lot of guys stuff. came in, you're right, and didn't
1: work out. That's true. Very true. But all, all these guys in baseball, all these teams, I would say, out of 30 or 32 teams, at least 28 of them were making good money, I would say. Overall, they wouldn't be in it. And they are making money. money, so, but they are putting it back in their pocket. They didn't want to spend. Joyce didn't mind spending. They said, well, they had more than anybody. Yeah, because he was winning. He said so you had to stand to make <laughs> money. You know? smart man. But he, he, he was a—he cared about people. That's one thing I admire about him.
0: Mm, cared about people and kept it from the heart. And man, how cool was that? When you know, you know, Doc's a, a met for life, folks. But I mean, to to go to the Yanks. Did you think? Did you think that an opportunity like that was going to present itself when when you went to the Yankees? And then, could you have imagined the no hitter in the World Series?
1: I couldn't imagine that. I, you know, the like, thing was. And 95, once the Mets want to cut ties, which, you know, I understood that. I, mean, I didn't like the right to do that. But I guy wanted to go back to the Mets and try to make it right with the fans because I didn't like the way things ended. And at that time, I had a couple of years, but not much. And so Mr. Cyber met with me and we talked and he talked about me joining the Yankees. I was ecstatic about that because I still get to be in New York. Um, even though when I'm with the Mets in my career, I hated the Yankees. Not literally hate them, but, you know, if the Yankee Mets, you don't deal with anything. Right, come that, that,
0: yeah, Made the
1: Yankee That's hatred. Yes. So now, <laughs> I signed with the Yankees, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm biking New York. This is great. And we for George. And I remember George said, just get out of trouble. Pitch the to pitch, and everything will be fine. And, and so playing with the Yankees. And I remember starting mm-hmm. off 4-3, and, and I got benched. I mean, if you ever hear a starting pitch, you'll be at the bench. That means you don't pitch in blowouts. If you're one to nothing or you're down to nothing, you don't get in the game. You're just there. And, unfortunately, David Cohen got the any rhythm, and this guy got me back into the rotation. My third start again, no-hitter, I never could imagine imagined that my father's dream. If this was going to throw a no-hitter, it would happen with the mess earlier in my career, not at this point. But the day it happened, it was just meant to happen. And in fact, if we have time, I can tell this story real quick about my father. Like I was saying earlier, he told me to game and everything. And now, the day after the no-hitter, I was supposed to be home with my father, who had an open-heart surgery the next day, because of his health. He had been on the for 15 years, and he felt if he didn't have the surgery, he wouldn't make it he had no shot and if he had the surgery well, there was no guarantee that he was going to make it and so that day i was going to go home to do it with him because the surgery was going to be initiated and i decided i woke up something came across and I said man he'll probably want me to pitch and so i called joe tory who was the manager at that time he said i'm coming in the pitch He's like, no no go home don't worry but take my time yes you know, i'll see you trying to pitch it then i called my mom she didn't take it as well. She said, no, you should be home with your dad. You know, please come home. So she made me feel bad, and I actually ended up hanging up with my mom because of the guilt, and I started feeling you know, bad that I'm not going home. And so that day, the first three end of that game, I'm standing in the walkway between the dugout and the clubhouse, wondering if I made the right decision or not. You know, sometimes cheering up. Not until the sixth inning when I realized I had a no-hitter going, you know, look at the scoreboard to see what hitters Seattle had coming up. and You see no runs, no hits, no errors. Now the hard stuff, a you little know, faster, you know, a little anxiety. And so I'm to really put my dad's situation aside, He You know, pitching a no-hitter. Obviously, maybe I go home, go to the hospital and get the ball. He had already had the surgery he at that hitters. time. And, and the doctor said that he saw the game, he had the one so the ball, and he ended up passing away like three days later. But the thing I was was the last game he saw me pitch was that no-hitter.
0: Guy, are you kidding me? No,
1: I'm serious. So just the way things happen to work out like that, it's just unbelievable. It's just meant to be.
0: Wow. You're you're, uh, you're you're God's favorite doctor. That's a – gee whiz. How beautiful is that?
1: That did. I this for him because you think – here's a guy that started up – well, the year before I was out of the game. Now I start up 0-3 where I just got hit hard. Then I get bench. Then I get back into the rotation because David Cohn, my fingers of aneurysm. And my third start back in, is a no-hitter. And then my dad passed away through his hitter with that. So I mean, that was definitely God's work
0: all the way. God bless, Pops. That is incredible. That is incredible. And who did you ever think you would see the day where they would put David Cohn and Dwight Gooding back, and then put him in pinstripes? Two of the most lovable Mets of all time. Amazing.
1: And Strawberry, he came but I mean, it, it's amazing to whenever we was there. There. Yeah, it's amazing. And <laughs> you know, then with the Mets, the way things happened to Manhattan. I think I have a decent relationship with the Waupons, with Fred and Jeff. But the thing was, um, after the 95 season, I want to go back to the Mets and they said no, we're going to cut ties. And then I came to the Yankees, 97, I mean, 96, 97, 98, I called it Mets again. Did off season? They said no. So I went to Cleveland, 98, 99. After 99, I called it Mets again. They said no. I ended up signing 2000 with the Astros. I I had one story. They traded to Tampa. I had eight stories. I got released. Call to the mess again. They said, no. In San Francisco, actually, I said want to travel. Yes, so he said, go over with the Billy Thomas, and if it don't work out, you come not work for me. So I go over to the Yankees Miley Complex, I throw, like, two rookie games, and then, I don't know if you remember, I had the day-night doubleheader in New York where the day games at Shea and the night games at Yankee Stadium. Oh, yeah, that was huge. They called me up. And I said, we need a picture for the day games to mess. And I didn't have my but I said, well, no matter what happens, at least I get to go to Shea Stadium that one last time, and that's really all I wanted. To go to shade. I won't have time for the fans mm-hmm. because of what happened in the and I ended up beating the Mets. Um, I went five and beat the Mets, stayed in the bullpen with the Yankees the rest of the year. And we beat the Mets in the little serious and then I retired. So that was just my way. So, you, know. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, it was perfect. Wow. So I said, a- this is a perfect time to retire right here. Yeah, I worked for yeah. Chase for six years. <laughs> that's
0: good. Yeah, that's that's going out on top. That was the city was electric during that Subway Series, and that, and that also, amazing. oh my god, parking at Shea that day, like you pull into that parking lot, you had to have like th- those had to be weird butterflies.
1: Oh man, that was crazy for me. I mean, coming in on the buses, you come into the other side, the dugout, you know, the visit dugout, the visit bullpen, introduction on the visitor side, went the Yankees, kids, right? all the teams. I mean, it just was, it was totally different. It was weird. And then before they get real-time started, if you remember, we had a week off before the Yankees actually started, so you had all the, mm. the hype going, all the build-up, uh-huh. the interviewing families, where half the family is half the family mess. I mean, they go yeah. through the whole thing, and, you know, I'm always a meta. But heart. Right. I, I definitely appreciate what the family The Yankees did me and my family like you know, by the work that I did over there as well, Allow me to come to the Yankees, Allow me to come back a New York for my career, man. And it would have been great even after I retired. Right.
0: People.
1: But
0: first love's a first love, folks. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. That is wild. That really, you, that's crazy, man. Your path your path is just, your path is wild. But that's, that's the Gooden brand, baby. That's <laughs> the Gooden brand. The Gooden brand
1: is incredible. And the Gooden brand came about with my son, Dwight Gooden Jr. He actually tried baseball and broke his home in the, in the a year ago. He played in high school, but I made the mistake of giving him my name, Dwight Gooden Jr., Send him to the same high school. So when he was a freshman, it was so, <laughs> mm-hmm. much, so much media hype and attention and everything with magnitude in comparison. what I was doing in high school, where it was just too much for and he decided he didn't want to play baseball anymore. But he's willing to have a good career. He's an agent now with Jerry Shepard. Uh, great job. He's an assistant at UPS in the top guys, the And then he kind of couldn't bring a couple years ago where now he's getting ready to really, you know, become a big thing. And it's good for his men's wear, his kids' wear, his you kind know, of apparel. It's a fun thing to do. We do a lot of stuff with the charity as well, and you know we got all types of shirts. we coming back with some throwback stuff from '85 some different stuff that you can't get. Mm-hmm. But we're looking to hopefully having the in or Walmart Super so the real soon. But the Gun Brand is good, good Right now you need go online at thegunbrand.com. But it's just fun stuff, and I'm proud of because that's that was his. That's his baby. He came out with that himself. Did anything the wrong way, and just helping him with it.
0: And, folks, if you go to com right now, I'm looking at it, man. I like that. That is that is such a clean logo with you in the stretch. And then, oh, man, I like that. Sh- the T with your head in the crown. King of New York, baby.
1: My son does have a awesome. yeah. He's amazing. I'm very proud of him. He does some great stuff.
0: You know what? You know what? I love to hear the fact that I bet it drives you crazy when you watch football games and then you see the jersey swaps at the end of the game. Oh, man. That's,
1: yeah, that's amazing. That's how <laughs> on the field. That's, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> It's amazing to do say it all the time. You got to swap jerseys and sign everything right there in the field. I can't imagine doing that when Simon and living in the Yankee Yankees and I swap jerseys with, uh, I don't know, Randy Johnson over the game. You know, <laughs> I would bring it at least that night, that I'm sure. Right.
0: So it should be, though. you got to have some loyalty out here, folks. Have some integrity out here. Sure. Sure. Oh, so so Cliff, Cliff Branch this morning said, you know, my man, Dwight, he was talking about some great run you guys have with each other meeting in the 80s, and uh, and the Raiders teams that won in the 70s, those were a wild bunch of guys, and your 86 Mets, wild bunch of guys, but both won championships. What is the key to finding that victory formula?
1: I think the thing is, like, people make a big deal out of it, and they take it for granted, you hear it all the time. It's chemistry, but I've witnessed it, lived it. And believe in it, with was a mess. We had a very close team. And, yes, we were a wild bunch. And the team was, like you said, the Raiders were wild that time. And I think all teams were wild that time. But we got a lot of, of the the page and really good from page because we were winning and we were successful. So we were getting the headlines, lines and we were hanging out. We was real connected to our fans. It was a big part of what we were doing in 86. And the thing I loved the most, and I think what really brought us together close as a team, was spending time off the field away from the ballpark. What I mean by that, like, say if we flew in the Chicago or St. Louis, guys, again, we get off at it, We team call your girlfriends or your wives. You have the 20th time in the roster, at least 23 guys meet back like, down the serious. You go after them, and hit the town. That's what right. I thought. Yeah. Yeah, about. we had guys on a team that could have been starting for other teams. You know, we had like Howard Johnson, you know, Batone Arena right at third. You had Tim Tauflin, between the water bike. Booker Wilson, I mean, actually, sir. Oh, Kevin Mitchell was on the bench. I mean, guys like that who could have been starting for the teams, but they all put the Eagles aside for one common goal. I think that's what made us winners, that's what made us champions.
0: And, and you're right. It's like now now they have more money. The athletes have more money, but they have less fun. It's a very if it's a very weird thing.
1: And you're right, because even at the end of my career, before I finished up with the Yankees, you know, you go on the road, you got two guys going this way, two guys going that way. You got one guy going his entourage this way, one guy going this person turning that way. It was no chemistry. even though he was winning with the Yankees, but there was no chemistry. And now a lot of guys just switching so much, Guys are working out together from other teams. And like you're right, the fun of the game is not there anymore. No it's too much of a business now. It's way too much of a business now. And the salaries you guys are making, they should be having more fun, you think. But the way the game is changing nice. now with everything is more of a business. Thing, guys, you can see, it's not, they're not having a on the bases anymore. Popping the fences, getting the fans the crowd, the curtain calls. You know, doing the waves in the stands, stuff like that. Because they're not allowing the, – the players are not connecting with the fans
0: now. That's what I see yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. It's like it's like two different worlds. Now, 2,293 strikeouts, folks, for Dr. K. Do you have a proudest one? Probably
1: my most, I would say the one in 1987, where well, I've just come out of rehab and faced from very bonds. My first hitter when I came out when the first battle, was striking bonds out and just seeing the crowd go crazy. I think that's probably my favorite one. Uh, just because of the magnitude towards that. And I would say that one, and if I could pick two, I would say the one was probably my first track out of Dickie Thun, my first start. I had my parents there in Houston to witness that as well.
0: And no, number three has got to be putting Chef down in the backyard. Oh, right.
1: definitely Chef. Definitely Chef. <laughs> definitely Chef. Striking him out with a called third strike, definitely Chef. <laughs> and gave me a bragging letter. <laughs> <right. laughs> <laughs> I got the wrong And he, he, he actually yeah. he never hit a home of me until 2000. The spring training with Astros of had a home run for me. And he was laughing, smiling after game. A lot of my friends going up to eat. and talking. I said, "Dude, I hate the bunch of bubbles." But yeah, you got the home run. But the only thing about it, it won't be on the back of your bubble I'm gonna call it, because it don't count. <laughs> <laughs> didn't count. <laughs> it didn't count. That's the spring training, so it didn't count. But he had fun with it. lasted? Yes, but he had a great career. He should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he he got the numbers. I'm of his career as well.
0: I could, I could, see. Chef could still be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, definitely, definitely. Now, you you had an eye always for talent. I mean, just growing up like that with with Chef, but uh, whether you knew it or not, you had the eye for talent. But did you see that in the young Derek Jeter when you guys were playing together? Did you see his future being so promising?
1: I saw Jeter watching him and his work ethic, and then even like once I saw the Yankees in late '95, first training at a camp, building up with the young rookies. And all that stuff and um he was there so he hit all the and I knew he'd be okay defensively but I never could imagine him hitting the mm-hmm. I mean, way he turned out to be a great hitter. If the hitter he turned out to be I never thought I would see that. So I was a little yeah. amazed about the hitter he became but not so much amazed by the defensive knowledge of the game.
0: There's a lot of talk now about teams getting rid of uh scouts and, and go relying so heavy on these computer numbers. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, it's amazing. I think there's too much on that. On analysis. Because one thing I always tell people, and then I'll say it's getting get into all the different things that happen." happening, the pluses and minuses, the only thing about analysts is it doesn't tell you about a guy that's hard. It doesn't tell you about a guy got tried. It doesn't tell you about a guy that's hungry for the game. It doesn't tell you that. So a lot of times I'm seeing with the guys that were great players in other cities and they come to New York and they can't handle it. And so you know, the analysts and all that stuff, it doesn't tell you about that. And plus with all the stuff with they don't want to pitch one more than 100 pitches they don't want him facing the lineup three you know, three times. If you get to face the lineup three times, I mean you are him pretty well from what I remember. Yep. I mean, you know, you you the guy <laughs> for the third time, you did it. pretty well. Mm-hmm. Plus I would trust you guys in the game opposed to bring a guy into the game because the guy is coming into the game. That doesn't mean he's gonna be on his game at night. But if you have a pitcher in there now that's showing you he's on top of his game. So there's a difference between hundred pitches and three innings opposed to hundred pitches and seven eight in. seven, seven eight is I mean the guy's pitching real well, he's dead. <laughs> 150 300 is not too good. So, I mean, they've got to look at those things. There's too much where they the bullpen. And then, as you saw in the real, real series, they wear these bullpens out by taking the starters out at the five, take them out to six. Now you get to the real series and the games are back to back and you got to play and these guys can't last. The bullpens go well out. And I think part of the like a lot of the injuries that come up from that because number one, these guys are not training like for the position. They're training the bigger and stronger. They're throwing harder, but they're not lasting as long. And they're trained to go five or six cities. Now you get to Royal Series they gotta break it down because they're not trained for the, the longevity and that's what
0: happens. So so Dwight, last question before you leave. What was your favorite Met uniform of all time?
1: Favorite Met uniform of all time, definitely would be the eighty six World Series. We had the patch from you was know, sixty nine when there, I believe. And the eighty six World Series season only because that year, besides 69, is the only year that that's won the World Series with the exception of 69. So that was definitely my favorite uh,
0: uniform. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> the good doctor, the two time strikeout leader, Silver Slugger, one of the greatest all time. Doc, thank you so much for coming by, man. Oh, my Bye, pleasure. Man. Thanks for having me.
1: Let's do it again. My pleasure, buddy.
0: Absolutely. Talk soon, Doc. And that will do it for the Doc Gooden special right here, episode 15 of the Charlie Boots Show. And don't forget. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all social media so you don't miss anything. Uh, To get the links to our YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all the social media, just head over to CharlieBootShow.com. You'll see top of the page. There's links to all of those pages, and we can get in tune with each other right there. Next week on the show, we have NFL wild man Conrad Dobler. And MLB Wild Man Tanyan Sturtz. So that should be uh, a lot of hitting going on on that episode. And then uh, tomorrow, we'll be releasing a new flavor episode from Otay's Mexican Restaurant in Alameda, home of some of the best Mexican food you're going to find in the Bay Area. So it's been an incredible March, and we're ready to march into a beautiful April, get this MLB season underway, and see what's to come for us. Thank you guys so much for tuning in been a pleasure as always i'm your host charlie boots until next time folks take care and toodaloo that's the charlie boots show